pray for City Church uh, before we look into God's Word. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the work you're doing in Manchester, not only through that local church in the heart of the city, but also through their church plants and their vision to plant uh, a number of churches throughout, throughout Manchester. We thank you for the conversions they're seeing. We would pray for the same here, that you would uh, awaken people. We know only your spirit can do that. Bless Matt and Jackie and Reuben in this break. May it be restful and replenishing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Psalm 32. There, right in the middle of the Bible. As we look into God's Word for just a little while before we come to the Lord's table. Psalm 32. Before I read it, let me just give you a little bit about the context, since context is everything. Uh, This is a psalm uh, not of confession. It's a psalm of of joy looking back to the confession of sin. Uh, So a proper title would be the blessedness or the happiness or the joy of being forgiven. Now, I don't know about if you ever thought, hey, what do I want the priorities of my life to be? If I know that my life is is limited, if I've only got days or weeks to live. Um, My father had a friend who was a huge football fan, college football fan. And to show you how old this is, it was when Tennessee was a force to be reckoned with. And so he loved the University of Tennessee. This man was dying, and he was in a hospital. And he told his family... I am going to make it through that game on Saturday that's going to be on television. I don't remember who Tennessee was playing, but he said, I am going to live long enough to see that game. And he did. And when the game was over, he died. He went into eternity uh, right after that football game. Now, there was another man who knew that he was on the brink of death, and he had a completely different perspective. Rather than sports, he thought about this psalm. His name was Augustine. He lived over 1,600 years ago, and and most of you have probably heard one way or the other about Augustine. There was a a man who had a godly mother. He lived a very godless life, very godless. He could have been in Manchester or New Orleans or wherever with ease and lived there. And in his 30s, he came to faith in Christ. It was a miraculous conversion that I won't go into now, but I mean, it was a, a conversion like that. And he became a theologian that we still look back to. Our understanding of sanctification, of growing in Christ, is based on the, it's the Augustinian view of sanctification. He also lived many years, but then he was dying of an illness, and so he had put before him on a wall Psalm 32. And so this psalm is what he wanted to reflect on, and it's the blessedness of forgiveness. Here's one more word, the context. You remember David is king. He was the king of Israel, and he had committed by this time horrendous public sin, adultery. Had Then the woman conceives. He brings her husband back from the army, from battle, and tries to make it look like he is a father, but 
The man won't follow David's plan, so David indirectly has him killed. And this, he did not repent until the child was born, so for at least nine months or longer, David's heart was hard toward God. Now, this is not a psalm that came right on the heels of that. This is some months or maybe years later. David is looking back at the condition he had been at when he was in rebellion against God and the blessedness of when he was brought back to God and the joy he found in forgiveness. Okay, so with those thoughts in mind, hear God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So ends the reading of God's word. We don't have time to go into all the details, but I do want to focus on just a few verses here. At the very beginning, as, as David is, is talking about the joy he has experienced, he starts with himself. He starts with his own transgressions, his own sin. And he uses all three Hebrew words for sin in verses 1 and 2. He says, blessed is the one whose transgressions, whose transgression is forgiven. A transgression is when we see like a sign saying, do not trespass, and we trespass. It's like a lock on a door, and you go up and you cut the lock. So that's a biblical term where we, we go a place where God says, don't go. The second word he uses is the word sin. They are still in verse 1, whose sin is covered. That's the word for miss the mark. God has set his standards. We find them summarized in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you shall not worship idols or so forth. You shall not use God's name in vain. You remember the Sabbath day and so forth and so on. And these are like high bars, bars of perfection. And we say, well, here this is, well, I come, I miss that's what the word sin means, to miss the mark. So transgression means to go where we're not to go. Sin means to miss the mark. And then the third word he uses is iniquity. He says, blessed is a man, verse 2, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's the, the fact that we are depraved, meaning sin has affected every area of our lives. That when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they died spiritually, now our emotions are not the way they originally were made, created. Our bodies don't function the way they were to be uh, originally. Our relationships, every area has been affected. So we've trespassed against God. He's thinking of himself. So David's saying, I, tres uh, I transgress God. I trespassed against him. I sin and iniquity. And look at the words. Now he uses all the words for forgiveness. 
He says about his transgression, blessed is the one who God has forgiven. God doesn't count it against him anymore. Sin is covered. There's the idea of the blood of Christ covering as an atonement, as a sacrifice, our sin. But I think my favorite is the third one when he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That is an accounting term. That where, well, you've got this count against you. You owe a certain amount. This uh, past week, I, I had something odd happen, odd for me. Uh, I, I pay our family bills with bill pay from the bank. So I pay everything via the computer, and either it goes directly or they mail out the check. You know how that works. And I re, I, I'd owed some medical bills, and I received a check made out to the medical clinic but it, but it was mailed to me. It wasn't made out to me. It was payable to the medical clinic. So I thought, well, the bank made a mistake. Must have made a mistake. I've never had this happen. And I always mail it directly to the vendor. So I went to the medical clinic, and um, I said, I need to pay a bill. This check was sent to me by mistake. So I was back talking to the person in accounting, and she said, wait here just a minute. She disappeared for a few minutes, came back to the office, and she said, you've already paid this bill. You paid this bill directly. And here, I'm going to take this, this check made out to us, and she wrote a big void on it. said, here, you take that for your records. And I walked back to the car. I know that's not profound. Or I thought, this, this is kind of unusual. <laughs> uh, but I thought, that's, that's the very concept he's saying, against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. You're, you're, uh, you're paid up. You don't owe anything. That bill's been paid. Now, so David had experienced that, and he finds great joy in this. And he also finds joy in the, as he reflects back in verses 3 and 4 to the effects of his own guilt. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my gro- through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Now, there's some metaphorical language there about bones wasting away, but basically, while he was far from God and in rebellion, there were physical effects. He felt it. He felt the emotional effects. We see the world. I see the world, and I see advertising, and I see movies, and lifestyles far from God that seem so happy and so successful and so much fun, and we don't see the reality often of Things are not the way they appear on the surface. And many of us could tell about our own uh, lives about that. And so we live with guilt and we live with shame and we live with paranoia because of what we've done to another person or what if I'm found out about this or, or we look, we're mad at ourselves, we've dis- disappointed ourselves and it affects our relationships with others. And we experience what Proverbs says, the way of transgressors is hard. And David had experienced that. And so he found joy that that God had, when he acknowledged his sin, it says in verse 5, My sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's a summary statement. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, there's a little booklet, and I, I, it's got a diagram, and I, I read this when I was in high school. It's written by Jay Adams, who used to be a counselor here in Macon, in this church, many, many years ago. And there was a little diagram that I, I think I can describe it to you, and you'll get the, you'll get the idea. 
if, think of just a, a big white sheet of paper with a circle in it. And that circle represents my guilt, my sin against God. And now the only other part of the diagram is an arrow. And so there's one of four ways we can respond to our own guilt and, and sin. The arrow meaning how we can deal with it. I go up to it and turn away from the circle and the arrow goes back down. And that is, okay, I began to see my sin, but I, I can't deal with this. I'm just going to, I'm just going to ignore, I'm going to act like it doesn't exist. That's the first part of the diagram. The second part is where you have the same circle and the arrow comes up and it goes around the circle and then it keeps going. In other words, we acknowledge it, we see it, we recognize and would say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm just, I'm just got to get on with my life. The third, and I think this is the most popular for us, is imagine that circle, but then there are these little bitty circles over here and out here. And so the arrow comes up, meaning we see our sin, but rather than dealing with it, oh, it's her fault, or it's his fault, or yes, this is true, this big circle is here, but it's really because of what happened to me when I was in the church, I had a bad experience in the church or, or something like that. So we, we acknowledge it, but we shift the blame to someone else. Now, as a pastor, please understand, I am not in any way trying to sound insensitive or downplaying the scars in our lives. And some people, perhaps even here, have suffered horrendous abuse at the hands of others or in families, or in, in your childhood. So I am not saying that is not a huge issue, but it's not the main issue. And so as long as we focus on, hey, I'm, I'll, I'll make myself better, I'll, I've got to go back and, and kind of recompute my brain because of these things that happened, we still haven't dealt with the sin. Here's the fourth part of the diagram. Now picture the circle split in half like you cut an orange with a knife, and you've got two halves, and the line and the arrow's gone right up through it. And that is, I acknowledge it and deal with it, and that's what David is saying right there in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And that circle got split right in half. So how, how does David know that? How can we say, well, maybe that was just wishful thinking? Well, God gives us these invitations in the Bible invitations to come to him and to confess our sin. The word confess just means to agree with, uh, to say the same, to attest to the truth of, to acknowledge. The most difficult part of confession is not with God, it's with us. Are we willing to own up to and admit our, our sin? It matters, and God gives us the most gracious invitations. If you think God is mean, especially when it comes to this, you've not read the scriptures. Let me tell you one of the, my favorite verses in the Bible, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus became a man. Listen to this invitation that, that you've heard many times that God gives. Come now, let us reason together. It's like, come on, let's sit down, let's talk. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool. If you dare sit here thinking I am beyond the reach of the grace of God, I've chipped, I don't know what kind of sins David committed, but, but I, I'm, I'm past him. No, no, you're not. 
and you're not past any of us, and you're certainly not past God's grace. And he says to you, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Have you confessed your sin to God? Have you seen it for what it is? Well, quickly now, as we prepare for the Lord's table, how did David know he was forgiven? I mean, you say, wait, David, uh, that's, uh, that's several centuries before Jesus came. I thought forgiveness came with Jesus on the cross. Well, of course, they were looking forward to the Redeemer that they knew about, even as we look back to what Christ did. But God gave them some very, very clear visual aids. And let me just briefly summarize one that God gave very specific directions for how they were to do this, the Jews, called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And you read Leviticus 4, you read Leviticus 16, and it gives all the detailed instructions. But in a summary, and I'm just going to make a long story short, on this one day of the year, all the people would gather, a huge multitude of people. And the high priest, following the directions from the scriptures, would stand before them, and there were a number of things that took place, but the essence of it involved a lamb and a goat, and the lamb would be offered as a sacrifice. A razor-sharp knife would cut its knife, uh, cut its uh, neck. It would die immediately. And then there were specific instructions of what the priest was to do with the blood. Much of that happened behind a curtain, behind a veil. People knew what was happening, but he did it out of their sight. But then to make a public statement, after this sacrifice was offered, the priest would come out, and there would be a goat, and he would place his hands on the head of the goat. And he would confess the sins of the people. And then the goat would be led off into the wilderness. That's our concept of scapegoat. That's what it was called. The sin bearer, the innocent one who takes the blame for others. We have scapegoats in all realms of life today. Finances, sports, everything else. It's that person's fault. We need someone to blame. And so the scapegoat would walk off. And, and even a little child would know that my sin had been transferred onto that goat, and now that goat is walking away. My sins are being carried away, carried by another. David knew that, and David knew that God was going to keep those promises, that he was going to send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent that had been foretold back in the book of Genesis. And so since Christ came, we don't do those things with goats and sheep anymore. We don't need to because Christ is our scapegoat. He bore our sins. He was separated from the Father. He dies and rose again. He buried our sins, as the scripture says, in the depths of the sea. He removed them from us as far as the east is from the west so that God can now say your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. If you've been in church, you could have given this sermon. You know all this. But the reality is some of us still have a hard time believing it. It can't be that simple. It's got to be that plus my morality or giving money to the poor and to the church or giving money or my church membership or, or lots of good things. But we cannot add to what Christ has done. And when we try to, we're putting the emphasis back on us. I've mentioned before, and a woman came up to me after the first service and told me that she remembered 
hearing this or reading about it in, a, in an advertising class in college. And it's about Betty Crocker, Betty Crocker cake mixes. I remember as a child, my mom would have those on the kitchen cabinet, Betty, Betty Crocker cake mixes. And they put out this cake mix, and uh, you just mixed it with water, and you could bake a cake, or at least it was a start. So nobody was buying it, or not enough people were buying it. And then they, were, they had done the research and thought this would work, and, but it wasn't selling. So like any wise business, they got a team together to do the research and survey people and find out and what happened. And here's what they discovered. It's too simple. When people read Just Add Water, they say it can't be any good. So for no other reason than to make it less simple, they added to the directions, add water and one egg. And it began to sell. And I think we hear the gospel and we think it can't be that simple. Jesus died for me? David, look at all you did. Look at the lives of the people that were affected. One that died, her husband. All this. And can it, I mean, you've got to look at, look at all the damage done. Of course, it doesn't do away with a lot of the ramifications of our sin. But as far as our standing with God, it's only due to what Christ has done. So perhaps today, as you come to the Lord's table, you may have some problems you can do nothing about. You can do very little about. You can't solve them with money, and they won't be solved with time. And you will probably carry those with you to the grave. But our greatest problem, you can do something about. And that is to know Christ. To be made right with God through Christ, if you haven't already. You can do something about that. You can receive the solution which God has offered that Christ has offered freely as a gift today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we are recipients of grace and forgiveness, but we often don't understand it because perhaps from other humans we've not received it or we've not given it. Maybe we have a hard time forgiving others, so we think that you can't forgive us either. We pray that like David, we would confess and acknowledge our sin to you, that if we do not know Christ as our Savior, that we would put our trust in him this very moment. And that we would know the joy not only of forgiveness and, and being right with you. In Christ's name, amen.